Welcome to WritersRadio.ca. I'm Carol Harmon. Today you will be listening to Shana Lambert reading from her 2020 novel, Petra. Petra is based on the life of Petra Kelly, the charismatic peace activist who was instrumental in halting the deployment of nuclear missiles in Europe in the 1980s. Petra was also the central figure in founding the German Green Party. I'm happy to introduce your host, Ingrid Rose, in conversation with Shana Lambert. Welcome, Shana Lambert. It's a pleasure to have you on Writers Radio. Thank you, Ingrid. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. And we're here really to, in a way, introduce Petra to our listeners if they haven't already read it. And also because you will be reading a short section from the Mm -hmm. beginning of the book. And it's so engrossing exciting and such a relevant book for now. I mean, how did you do that? <laughs> oh, well, first of all, thank you. That's thrilling. I mean, it's thrilling to hear you say that. And I'm so glad that that you enjoyed it. You know, it took a really long time as as writers, you know, know. I mean, it, 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 it was at one point, uh, it was a play. So it was interesting um, to hear you say that you do playwriting. Um, earlier on when we were just chatting privately. Um, Yes, it was a play. It morphed into a novel. It went back and forth a lot. Um, I I worked on it and then I also put it away a lot. I I put it away often out of complete frustration because it, it it was complex to write. And, you know, one of the complexities was the fact that Petra Kelly was a very real person. And so I was fictionalizing and I wasn't doing what uh, writers often do, fictionalizing into the deep past, into, you know, I have a wonderful writer friend, Eva Stakniak, who told the story of Catherine the Great in um, the her book, The Winter Palace. I had envy for her because she was fictionalizing the long, 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 long dead, you know, whereas I was just fictionalizing into the recent past. So it often felt like, well, when you just pull back that one layer of the past, it can feel transgressive, you know, like you're just like you're almost walking into your own past, how you feel about, you know, it felt a little bit like that same same level of transgression that you have when you write a character who's looking quite a bit like your father or your mother, you know, that sense of um, somebody's going to pop up and say, who do you think you are and how dare you, right? And who, when you were writing Petra, who also was there? I, I understand that you actually did meet her. I did. I did meet her. So I think the germ of the story began, I mean, my fascination with Petra as a person who had, you know, stepped across the path of my own life began uh, because in 1986, ever so long ago, before I was even a fiction writer, um, I was very involved in the peace movement, you know, at the height of the nuclear arms race. And I uh, was the coordinator for the End the Arms Race Coalition here in Vancouver that used to organize the really massive walks for peace. And um, 
we invited Petra Kelly and um, it was a Vancouver centennial year. So there was a lot of interest and some money from the city to invite 20 world experts on peace. And so we invited Petra Kelly and, um, and she brought her general, her lover, who in the book I call, Ger um, I call Emil Gerhardt. And um, they came together. And so I watched them interact. And Petra Kelly was amazing. I mean, she, she spoke at the Orpheum Theater. Of course, it was completely sold out. And she was mesmerizing, Ingrid. She was wonderful. She was intersectional. She brought in all sorts of issues, you know. And she was uh, fierce and unafraid, a real flame bearer. And well, yes, I just want you to back up a little bit. Yeah. Because I have to admit, I was ashamed that I had never heard of her. Mm -hmm. And I've since I've read your book, I've mentioned to a number of friends, they hadn't heard of her. And when we've been activists and political and all and feminists, why haven't we heard of her? And tell us a little bit about who yeah, she Yeah, who she who she well I'll tell you I'll to start by saying um who she was. I almost want to say who she is because I do think that she's so important, she does live on. Uh, who she was, um, she was a half American, half German, and um, she was in Germany in the early 80s, and she founded, late 70s, early 80s, she helped to found the Green Party of Germany, which of course was the seed for all of the Green Parties all around the world. So she changed the course of history um, in that they had a very broad and exciting, you know, people would say sexy agenda that brought together demilitarization and um, uh, uh, participatory democracy and uh, the environment and anti-nuclear movement and anti-war. and anti -war. And at the same time that she was doing that, there were, you know, this huge outbreak of protests all around the world because of the deployment of, because of the, you know, massive buildup of nuclear missiles all around the world. It was, the atomic clock was set at three minutes to midnight. We were living through a period of extraordinary world crisis anxiety, very similar to the sense that people have now around the climate anxiety. I mean, people would say quite routinely, I don't know if I'm going to live into the future. I don't know if I'm going to have children. I'm thinking those things over. We forget, like we have a kind of societal amnesia, I think. Um, so we forget that. But she, anyway, she, uh, on top of being one of the co-founders of the Green Party, um, uh, became the lead sort of key figure in the fight against nuclear missiles in Germany. And Germany, I should just uh, uh, conclude by saying, Germany was the uh, point of contact for all of this because NATO was moving its missiles into Germany. It had just announced it wanted to move its Pershing and cruise missiles into Germany to line them up on one side of the Iron Curtain while Russia had moved its nuclear missiles, its SS-20s to the other side. So people in Germany were looking at this and they were saying, holy crumbs, we are the nuclear battlefield. And at the same time, the United States said, and also we think we can fight a battlefield nuclear war. And everyone said, no, you can't. You can't use nuclear weapons in seconds, in minutes, like probably in three minutes, it'll become a worldwide conflagration. So that's kind of the setup for what was happening. And that's the setup for my book, this incredible push and pull of forces across the Iron Curtain. And this 
gorgeous, inflammatory, fascinating woman who rose to be the leader of it all. Yes, that's what I find so intriguing about it, because when we think of history and the complexity that is in all of, yes, because history goes back far, yet you bring this very unusual individual, and but very recognizable, both in her vulnerability you know, um, and her need, her desire. Yeah. So there, that's what I think is so interesting. We, we have the opportunity to go inside a political cadre and see what happens. I think many of us have, have been involved in the past through, you know, I was involved in the late 60s and 70s in politics, but we were never in a position of power. <laughs> so that, that to bring both the personal story and the actual history together, enormous amount of research. It was an enormous amount of research. It was. And you know, what you say about Petra Ingrid is really true. I mean, she was, she was so complex, you know, and I mean, she was uh, a wonderful spokesperson, but she would say whatever she felt like saying. People would say that, you know, she was a star. And so she didn't really pay that much attention to what other people told her to say. She, and she was very, very smart. So she would just weave it together and, and speak it. But at the same time, she was very vulnerable. People talked about this extraordinary mix of opposites in her, you know, that she was a really generous, but also um, really um, quite narcissistic. I mean, I think we would have, we would call that narcissistic. She probably had anxiety and yet she, um, and yet she could always go out and speak to a huge crowd and galvanize them. So, so she was this wonderful, wonderful mix of opposites. And of course, for me, the most fascinating opposite was here was this woman of peace, this icon of peace and environmentalism. And she got involved with this German NATO general. And that's really what the story is about. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> I think once people have heard you read just the opening of it, they'll want to buy the book. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, this, this thing about, I mean, just to go back to, to the general, I mean, I think one of the things that intrigued me as I was writing the book was this kind of dance that they get into, you know, that she's, she's so, she's such a green and she's so new and she's, she belongs to a new generation in Germany, you know, uh, 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 they're wanting to remake the ugly old past and he belongs to that other generation, you know, he belongs to the people who had lived through the war I mean, in Germany, there's that expression, the luckiness of having been born too late. And they I mean the luckiness of being born and not having had to participate in the war, to live through the war in any of its forms, either the bombing of Germany or, you know, Auschwitz and the Eastern Front and that legacy of mass murder. And so she, she was of the next generation that then, you know, they were looking at Emil Gerhardt's generation, and they were saying, what did you do in the war? Who were you? You know, so there's a lot of questioning of that generation. So it's doubly fascinating that she chose him. Yeah. It also kind of makes sense, you know? Yes. Yeah. Jane, thank you so much. Hope to see you again soon. 
Hope to see you again soon too. Thank you, Ingrid. It's been delightful. Petra was soaking in the tub, reading the newspaper, when she called out from the bathroom, Manfred, you've got to come, you simply won't believe it. This was at the farmhouse, our hub for political organizing, 30 kilometers southwest of Bonn. The house was just outside a village whose name was never important to us. Picture a few cows, a pile of tires in the field next door, unmoved for the five years we occupied the place. We are here for the cheap rent and the large kitchen under heavy blackened beams. The thick walls smelled of yeast and were cool even in the height of summer. We talked, yelled, organized. The bedrooms were covered in mattresses for the itinerant activists who came and went as we built our movement. I was bent over my cast iron skillet like an old grandmother in a fairy tale, cooking a lamb stew. I browned the cubes of meat adding wine, then stock and vegetables, scraping the good bits from the bottom. A piece of mushroom had found its way into my beard. When Petra called, I glanced up to see frost on the window. It looked like a towered city, capped by blazing stars. That city of frost has stayed with me long after other memories have died. Ice is important to this story. Petra, when she finally decided to flee would flee to a land of ice. But in my memory, it is mixed with another image. That night I wore an apron that pet Katrina, my ex-girlfriend, had left behind when she stormed from the kitchen, banging the walls, kicking the door with her thick black boots. It showed a jovial chef brandishing a barbecue fork, on which was affixed a beaded bratwurst sausage. He himself wore an apron with another chef also brandishing a bratwurst, and so on and so on, the chefs and their sausages becoming tinier and tinier to infinity. January 1980. Exactly two months after the announcement that rocked Europe, NATO planned to station intermediate-range nuclear missiles in West Germany, an ultimatum to the east to Russia and its satellite states, remove your own nuclear missiles, the SS-20s from East Germany, or in less than three years, we roll ours in a face-off across the Iron Curtain. The United States spoke of fighting a limited nuclear war in Europe. Everyone was afraid for the state of the world. As now, it was hard to think about the future without feeling a profound sense of total despair. These nuclear weapons were like sick boxes of death, each one full of a firepower that could destroy the world a hundred times over. The esteemed bulletin of the atomic scientists set its nuclear clock two minutes closer to midnight. But at the center of this dangerous world, our little band of sisters and brothers, led by the charismatic Petra Kelly, had a counter plan. It focused on the new political party we were building. 
The stew was bubbling. I stirred in a bit more broth and then picked my way through the many shoes in the hallway to the bathroom. I should say that Petra and I hadn't been lovers for over a year. This wasn't my choice, and I still had hopes. In the last year, the Irish trade unionist had fallen away, too possessive, and the Hamburg artist had been tasted and dismissed. His art was minimalist, but he was a cluttered mess of needs and recriminations. And so it was me, Manfred Schwartz, pushing open the bathroom door. Petra shook the newspaper at me. The pads of her fingers had softened from the water. Her short, wet hair lay flat against her face. Just listen to what this NATO general has done. Gone from her face was what I thought of as her scissors look. Pinched and pale, stripped of humor, she started to hand me the newspaper, then grabbed it back and read out loud, Commander of the 12th Panzer Division of the Bundeswehr. The gist was this. At a much-publicized rifle banquet in Marbach the night before, a NATO general had made a scene. A black-tie event. You could imagine the women must have all been in long gloves, covered in sequins. But here, listen. There's a tradition in the club of bringing a massive roasted pig into the hall, a Spanferkel on his platter with an apple in its mouth, while the military band strikes up a ceremonial march. Well, the military band chose to play the Badenweilermarsch. She looked at me pointedly. And yes, I understood. This was Hitler's march, played whenever he entered a public rally. This fact was well known to us, and it underlined without further words how fused the present Bonn elite was to the old system, ancient Nazis recycled and turned into judges and politicians. For non-Germans, it might have been possible to listen to the Badenweiler Marsch, its whistles of flutes and piccolos followed by three distinctive horns, and not hear the darker resonance of Nazism. But not for people of my age, children of the Nazi generation. Petra shook this paper straight and continued to read. No sooner had the band struck up the tune than General Emil Gerhardt, commander, etc., 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 pushed back his chair, crossed the room, and tapped the conductor on the shoulder. I would prefer it, said the general, if that particular march was not played, neither here nor on any occasion. I could picture it. The banqueting generals surrounded by their jeweled wives, the room fat with satisfaction, two men holding aloft the pig, basted in dark beer and with an apple in its mouth, a display of head cheese, pomegranates and roasted peaches around its haunches and cloven feet. Then a yelp of appreciation bursting from the greybeards in the room. And then this general, requesting the conductor's attention while he glares in surprise and keeps waving his baton, and the tuba and the bassoonist begin with mounting discord to lose control of the music until at last the whole thing founders with a final bleat of the trumpets. I say, says the general, would it be possible for you to play another song? Petra dropped the paper on the floor and stood, sloshing water, Pass me a towel, Matford. I'm going to write him a letter. She was dripping, little breast so pretty, hip bones framing the dark patch of hair. No, you're not. That's ridiculous. I am. I handed her the towel and she began to dry herself vigorously. 
he could be an important ally. Unlikely. Yes, is that so? You know the mind of this general already? I know he can't help us, if that's what you mean. I went back to the kitchen, where the stew had cooked down too much. Bits of potato and lamb were stuck to the frying pan. I poured in some wine, but the whole thing now had a slight burnt flavor. Petra came in, toweling her hair and wearing her customary loose pink sweatpants and a t-shirt, swords into plowshares. She tossed the towel onto the back of a chair, went to her room, and came back with a couple of postcards, one of Rosa Luxemburg, the other an innocuous vision of the Rhine in springtime. She chose the latter, sat down and scribbled quickly, then read aloud. Dear General Gerhardt, I heard of your act of conscientious objection to call attention to Hitler's odious march. Well done. If you have other values of this sort, come, be part of our movement, join the Green Party of West Germany. She turned to me. What do you think? I pushed a bowl of stew in front of her. It got burnt, I said. It smells good. As I handed her a spoon, she took hold of my hand and kissed the back of it. We need everyone, she said. I sat. We must believe in human goodness. Isn't that our job as people of this earth? I don't think so. You're angry with me, she said. Why should I be? She was silent, chewing a piece of meat. We need more allies from the center, she said. A NATO general? Is that the center? She shrugged. And what? You will write him a postcard and tame him? You'll gentle the general? Watch out, I wanted to say. He's old enough to be your father. She had a father thing, it was well known. She and I even occasionally laughed about it, her proclivity for older men. Her father had disappeared when she was five, without a word or a note. He left her with a father-shaped gap in her chest, a place where the wind blew in, and a Pez container he'd bargained for in the American sector, shaped like Mickey Mouse. Watch out for fathers, I wanted to say. But I didn't. I'd like to acknowledge my fellow producers Ingrid Rose, who was today's host, and Gary Sill, our technical and musical producer. Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast. We are grateful to the Shishal Nation, traditional stewards of this beautiful part of Canada. Writers Radio broadcasts at the top of the hour, 24-7. Our programs are archived as podcasts on the writersradio.ca website. Thank you for listening.